This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and my regular co-host Tony Black is away at the moment, uh, having a bit of shore leave. So I'm joined this week by friend of the network, Clara Cook. Hi Clara, how are you? I'm good, how are you Duncan? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. I've just been uh, sort of moving out of my house and kind of trying to set up uh, in a new location while we have some renovations done. So I'm a bit living out of a box and all over the place. But other than that, I'm okay. <laughs> the reason that we wanted to have Clara on for this episode is basically th- this episode, um, a couple of weeks ago, Tony and I did an episode about um, action heroes, uh, particularly kind of 1980s action heroes, and looking at how that tied into the kind of captains and the kind of heroes that we see in Star Trek. And this episode, in a way, I think is going to be sort of complementary to that, um, in that what we're looking at in this episode is the idea of epic heroes, of these kind of ancient uh, heroic characters, these heroic archetypes types and the way that they found their way into some of Star Trek stories. Um, and Clara, I think you you did a classics degree, is that right? That's that's sort of your background? Yeah, I did a degree in classical studies. Um, so basically a lot of ancient Rome, ancient Greece and the ancient world, a lot of mythology, a lot of tragedy, a lot of epic poetry. Um, I did it a long time ago. <laughs> that's <laughs> so right. So this was actually really fun to prepare for because... Um, I got to revisit some of the things that I really enjoyed studying. But yeah, mm. it's, that, that, it was a great degree to do. I highly recommend it. I bet. It sounds fascinating. I mean, usually when we do kind of literary topics on primitive culture, they're a little bit more in my... I, I did an English literature degree, so I can kind of cope with, you know, uh, Dickens or... Um, trying to think what else we've been doing. Well, the Manchurian Candidate, not that we studied that when I was doing my English course, but uh, but these kind of texts are definitely going back a little bit uh, into the kind of dim and distant past as far as I'm concerned. But um, it's been a fascinating experience for me just uh, sort of getting to know some of these texts. Um, Beowulf I was I was a bit familiar with, but other than that, um, not really so much. Um, the first episode that I thought we might look at... Um, is the episode Darmok, because in the episode Darmok, obviously, there's this sort of key scene towards the end and and really a key moment in that episode uh, where Captain Picard brings up the Epic of Gilgamesh because he's he's learned from the Tamarian captain this story of Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. 
Um, and then in his kind of way of, of trying to give something back to him, he, he decides he'll tell him a story. And the story he decides to tell is the story of Gilgamesh, basically, um, which is, in fact, uh, I, I didn't know this until I started researching this this week, but is the, I think, the, pretty much the oldest story that we have really culturally uh, extant. It's, it's about a thousand years older than the Iliad, a uh, thousand odd years older than the Bible. So this is really kind of ancient literature in a sense and and it's kind of interesting that that's what captain picard chooses to to bring out as this kind of um human cultural uh cachet in a sense to kind of offer this alien culture yeah so i loved darmok as an episode um i loved it the first time i watched it as a child and i love it again as an adult i think it's an exceptionally um, well-written episode I, and I actually liked the fact that Picard brought up Gilgamesh um, at the end of it. And I do actually, reading some of Gilgamesh, I have to say I didn't manage to get through all of it, but reading some <laughs> of Gilgamesh um, for this this podcast, I actually have to say I did really enjoy Gilgamesh itself as well. It's very different than other epics that I've read. Um, and it it's got some things that are quite similar to the Bible, but also quite different than the Bible too. So, And also the fact that it's been it was written and composed so many, so many years before almost anything else that I'd ever read about, um, which is fascinating, really. Um, I, I, I don't know. I had conflicting feelings about mixing the two themes. So mixing Gilgamesh and mixing, da- mixing Darmok itself. Um, mm. There are some things that are similar um, in Darmok, like Picard um, and the Tamarian captain joining forces, um, similar to the story of Gilgamesh and I think Ankadu is that how you say it? Ankadu. Um, I was going to say Enkidu, but I don't know Enkidu. you. I think you're right. I think it is Enkidu because I, I have a feeling I read that the pronunciation is the same as as Gilgamesh. Enkidu sounds a bit more noble, though. I know, yeah. <laughs> and it sounds more noble than Enkidu, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Oh well. But, yeah. The, so the two of them being enemies and becoming friends and working to get together, especially to defeat monsters and to fight gods, but. The Tamarians, I mean, Troy, I think, is, I think it's Troy that says that the Tamarians have no sort of ego structure to their language. You know, they have no um, self-identity. Um, they, they, they talk in metaphors. They talk in, in relation to stories of their own culture. That's something that I didn't identify with when it comes to epic heroes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, epic heroes have a very strong ego culture. They have a very strong sense of self and of identity. So I thought that the Tamarians themselves weren't really comparable with the characters in Gilgamesh. The sure. Si- the situation was, perhaps? I think that's the thing. It's the situation. And I suppose because the because Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra, because, because the, the kind of crux of the communication between the two captains rests on Picard recognising this sort of situational similarity. And also the fact that that seems to be how their language plays out is through these kind of situational uh, parallels between different moments um, that maybe it makes sense. You, you can kind of imagine Captain Picard being the well-read captain that he is, that this is the example that kind of, that sort of springs to mind. But definitely, I mean, I I, I certainly had never read this poem uh, before preparing for this podcast, but I would recommend it. I think it, it's, it's very interesting. It's quite mad, frankly. It's a lot more uh, sort of weird and kinky and strange um, than I was expecting. But it's also a lot more beautiful in many ways than I was expecting. It, it, it's towards the end of the poem, kind of after the section that Picard talks about, really, it becomes this quite um, thoughtful meditation on death. And and basically Gilgamesh gets to this point where his, his friend, spoiler alert, 
although this is in Darmok as well, dies. <laughs> um, and he's, he's first of all, he's, he's, you know, devastated for the loss of his friend, which is sort of what Captain Picard talks about. He says he wept bitter tears. But he is also deeply kind of... Um, troubled by it. It makes him face his own mortality and he rages against his mortality and he decides that he wants to defeat death and he goes on this sort of quest by himself and he goes and finds this special flower, I think it is, that's supposed to give him, you know, eternal life. And then he he rests for a while and a snake takes the flower and goes off and, and so he, he loses this. But there are all these kind of meditations on um, the importance of, you, you know, recognizing that life is brief on kind of savoring each moment a lot of the same themes that come up in generations funnily enough um about kind of mortality as a kind of reminder of the the wonderful things in life so it's a surprisingly sort of uh sophisticated poem i think in some ways given that on another level it's all about you know bashing monsters and these quite tough quite i mean gilgamesh at the beginning of the poem is a bit of a brute he's not what we would consider a hero he's kind of a He's certainly not a Starfleet kind of hero. He's he's a bit of a tyrant, you know. He's kind of um, ruling his people with a with a tyrannical style of rule. But the other thing that's quite interesting, as you you mentioned, um, it kind of uh, has thematic connections with a lot of stories in the Bible. Apparently, when they first, because they, they only discovered this story, although it's as I say, the oldest story in literature, as far as we know, you know that that we have, um, it was only translated in the kind of Victorian period and. Um, the, apparently, the man who who translated it was so excited when he when he realised that he worked out what he'd discovered, he threw off all his clothes and ran around the room in his underwear uh, <laughs> in this kind of mad um, frenzy. And the reason was because he discovered these biblical uh, stories in this text, which clearly predated the Bible. And from his perspective, um, as a Victorian Christian and so on, he thought that this proved that the Bible must be true. Obviously, we might say, well, it, all it proves is that the same stories were going round and round. But the thing that really struck me. Really reading uh, the, the Gilgamesh version, if you read, for example, there's a version of the flood story, you know, the Noah's Ark story. Um, and in that story, the, the character, I can't remember who it is in, in Gilgamesh, but he's, you know, encouraged to build an ark and so on. The ark he builds is a kind of, is a cube. He builds a cube-shaped ark. So, of course, I, you know, I was reading this thinking about Star Trek, but it, it seems to me it's like they, here's this kind of cube-shaped vessel uh, many thousands of years uh, before we encounter the Borg, obviously. So, um it is a fascinating poem. It's a fascinating story. It's uh, well worth reading, I'd, I'd say, if, you, if you're interested in something a bit odd. But it also, you know, I think it adds a lot to Darmok. Um, I think partly because Patrick Stewart, the way he tells the story or paraphrases the story, he tells it very beautifully. You get a sense of the kind of um, the emotional depth of that story somehow. And it, it, it certainly add something to that episode, I suppose, by bringing something of our own, you know, human culture um, to offer to that alien culture. Yeah. So, I mean, there were several things that I would say about this is that, well, first of all, I, I agree with you. The poem is amazing. And I, I really enjoyed so much of it. And I also was very excited by the fact that it does some of the events in the uh, in the poem do mirror some of the events in the Bible, but it tells them from a completely different point of view. Mm. Also, the gods and the uh, the gods and the gods the God, sorry, the one God in the Bible or in both books of the Bible is actually quite a different God um, than the gods in Gilgamesh. And that was something that I'll go on to talk about in a minute. I felt like the Gilgamesh as a story was used as a, as a device by Picard mm. to um, illustrate a, um, a point, basically, to illustrate um, an idea, the idea of two people who are enemies coming together and working co- co- um, 
collaboratively. But I think if you look at the qualities of Gilgamesh um, himself and you look at the qualities of epic heroes, I would say that they don't actually portray the characters. They don't have as much in common with the characters in Dalmok themselves. I think Picard himself, as well as the Tamarian captain, are working together for a greater good. Um, and I'm, I think that's something that you don't necessarily find in epic poems or in epic heroes. And I would say you don't actually find that in Gilgamesh as much. I think Gilgamesh himself, um, though his, his quest to understand mortality, human mortality, um, and understand death and life, it, it's, it's a very worthy quest. It's very much a personal quest. He loses his friend. He's grief-stricken. And it's very much about his grief, himself, um, and they make it clear very much in the beginning of the poem that he's a terrible, terrible leader. Like you said, he's yeah. a tyrant. It's He's not a communal leader. He's not someone that cares about his community or cares about his people. And at the end, you know, he does go on to, to be a better leader, to be a great king um, through this struggle to discover his morality, discover himself. And that is something I guess you could argue does exist in Star Trek. Um, people gaining a moral truth through some sort of experience and i think most of the characters at some point will have had some sort of experience like that especially characters that have a lot to learn um, in terms of humanity like data or spock um but i think in this particular episode we've got two very noble captains who are pitted together in a situation where they have to rely on each other a bit of a different kind of story than Gilgamesh itself. I think maybe the writers want to introduce mythology into Star Trek because epic mythology or epic heroes or epic poetry is seen as this high art form and they want to bring it into Star Trek. And I applaud that, but I think that our Western view, we have to question what our Western view of epic heroes and epic mythology is. Um, you said this was first uh, uh, published and um, translated in the Victorian era and I think perhaps maybe the way that we view some of these myths is through a sort of Western cultured Victorian eye. And I question really how the ancient world would have viewed Gilgamesh, you know, how, 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 how perhaps maybe the, the, the actual people living in this civilization would have felt about the poem. One thing I did think that was actually something that can be linked to the episode was that um, the, the way the gods are portrayed. So, mm-hmm. The gods are, they are not the gods, they're not like the god of the Bible. In fact, they're much more like the gods of um, ancient Greek epic, yeah. epic myth. Yeah, they are um, a bit like children. You know, they are fickle, um, they are unkind, they are cruel, but they're also um, loving and caring and they bestow great favor on the humans. Um, they demand piety and obedience, um, even unreasonable obedience, but they also can punish just because they feel like it. I don't know. I guess I would say that um, the gods in Gilgamesh, they, I, I felt like they served to remind people. They had a practical knowledge, a practical knowledge of, of reminding people that nat- of nature's power and uh, uh, of the world around them, that human beings basically are one aspect of a wider world, you know, that humans have, have the place in the larger scheme of things. And I think that's what the Tamarian captain is kind of doing to Picard in Darmok is he's reminding Picard that there are other ways to communicate. You know, he's reminding Picard that you can't always just think in these literal words that the way that the Federation or the way that humans communicate. I think very much at the beginning, um, although obviously 
Starfleet and the, the, you know, the crew of the Enterprise want to communicate with the Tamarians, I was quite surprised watching this again, how quickly they lose patience with the Tamarians, mm. how quickly they don't even try to understand them. You know, they really need like a Hura on the bridge because I think she would probably start like, you know, she'd be like, yeah. oh, I know what it is, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But they, they, there's this tendency, I think, in the next generation for the humans or, or the, um, the or for Starfleet or the Federation to see themselves as like the big players in the universe. Um, and this is a little bit like Gilgamesh. You know, Gilgamesh sees himself as a big player in the story, but actually he's surrounded by gods. And then ultimately... He has got to be a slave to death. Like death will come and conquer even him um, and take away his friend, you know, and, and change his world. So in a way, I felt like this was a, a theme that was kind of echoed a little bit in Darmok, whether or not the writers meant for that theme to be there. But that's how I associated it a bit. I thought Picard and the Enterprise crew are being taught a lesson. They're being taught that the way they communicate isn't the only way to communicate, that they, there is a whole other society or culture that exists that's just as much a part of the universe as the Federation or Starfleet, or as humans, for that matter. Well, the Tamarians are kind of, certainly by Star Trek standards, one of the most kind of radically alien species that we see, I think. I mean, not not physically, obviously, you know, physically, they, they and in terms of their ships and so on, they're quite familiar. They're within the kind of Star Trek mold. But this idea, which, you know, people have debated at length whether this is plausible, you know, if, if you'd really had a language based on um, metaphor and, and allegory and so on, would you be capable of building a starship? You know, are these things possible? Um, but certainly, if you kind of suspend your disbelief on that it you know it is a very uh it, it it demonstrates i suppose the extent to which the way that we communicate affects the way that we interpret the world around us and the way that that you know that we see things through a kind of um through our language and through our systems of communication to a certain extent and you know and this is a society where it it you know there is such a, a barrier to communication i mean I think Darmok is a wonderful episode. It's one of my favourite Star Trek episodes. It's one of my, absolutely one of my top next generation episodes. I think I mentioned um, when I was doing the From There to Here rewatch uh, last year for the 50th anniversary, um, I was working my, my way through the next generation. I, I posted something on the Babel conference then actually, because I think it, I, I came to watch Darmok. I was watching it early in the morning um, and it was the day after the Brexit vote. And it really uh, affected me watching it in that context because, you know, quite aside from the, the outcome of that vote, that the campaign that had been fought had been so uh, sort of nasty and unpleasant and kind of, I don't know, a, a nasty kind of political campaign in a sense and everyone out for themselves. And, and the whole Very situation... Divisive. Yeah, and also the whole situation had come about because, you know, we had a, a Prime Minister, David Cameron, who'd called this referendum purely out of his own political interests, you know, not not out of any kind of greater interest. And everyone, it just felt like it was politicians at their most kind of venal and self-serving at that moment. Um, and it, it really kind of profoundly moved me watching this story where you have these two captains who are both, you know, the Tamarian captain loses his life. He's willing to sacrifice his life. Captain Picard is willing to kind of you know, it wasn't his idea, but at the same time, he can recognise that sacrifice. He can kind of respect it. He, you know, he's the kind of most noble, sort of ideal diplomat that that we know in Star Trek, in a sense. And there is something really inspiring about that. And I suppose it's interesting talking about, you know, what constitutes a hero, what makes a hero, whether Gilgamesh even really is a hero or, or a sort of anti-hero or what. But you know, I think the episode Darmok certainly presents heroism as being very much about 
self-sacrifice, working for the greater good, um, you, you know, putting the, the needs of your society or your culture above your own personal needs. Um, all these things that, as you point out, are sorely lacking in Gilgamesh as a, as a hero, in a sense. But one of the things, and, and th- this isn't quite resolved in the poem, but I think it is interesting what you do see in the poem of Gilgamesh is a degree of, of kind of growth of him as a character. You know, he does change over the course of the story. And a large part of that is because of this character Enkidu or, or Enkidu or whatever his name is, his, his friend. Um, and you mentioned Spock before. There's definitely something, I think, of the Kirk-Spock relationship in the Gilgamesh-Enkidu relationship because he's he's sort of his friend. He's he's like a brother. He describes him. At some points, they describe each other almost as if they're married. And there is, you know, obviously with Kirk and Spock, there's that kind of slash element. And, you know, and even in, say, Star Trek V, they kind of almost acknowledge that with that that scene where he goes to hug him. And, you know, they have this very close relationship. You also have, of course, with Kirk and Spock, you know, the fact that Spock dies and Kirk is, you know, is devastated by his friend's death and and how will he kind of manage to to cope with that and to sort of um, grow from that experience? What does it mean to lose someone who's that close to you and who's like your sort of other, other half in a sense? And I think with Gilgamesh and, and Enkidu, there's definitely the sense that although Enkidu is the the wild man, you know, he was kind of like a beast in the forest. There was a kind of innocence to that, um, you, you know, in that he um, he he wasn't capable of sort of tyranny or anything like that because he was living a sort of simple wild life in a sense. He was like you know Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in a sense. He hadn't been corrupted uh, in the way that that, that Gilgamesh is, um, and he becomes a kind of a voice of reason. I suppose this is what makes me think of Spock again to Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is always wanting to go in and fight the monsters and go on a quest and do really dangerous, reckless things. And Enkidu is the one sort of saying, oh, I don't think this is a good idea. You know, why don't we just, you know, let, let's let's be a bit more rational about this. Let's be a bit more sensible about this. Let's not take risks. Um, and then, of course, there's that kind of tragedy that he's the one who ends up, you know, being punished and dying for that. And in a sense, he dies because Gilgamesh won't give up going on these stupid quests, you know, which again, sort of, there's definitely a kind of thematic link there to that kind of Kirk-Spock relationship where, you know, Spock is the more noble of the two characters, really, I'd say. You know, Kirk is the more kind of, you know, more sort of earthy and, and human in a sense, uh, in the way that we we use the word human like that. You know, he's more flawed, he's more fallible, he's more likely to sort of go with his gut. Um, so it definitely made me think of that reading it. I do think that Kirk is much more closer to an epic hero than a lot of the other captains. I agree mm. with you though. There was I was original um original series episode that I was watching the other day and I can't remember what it was now, but um, they were both wearing capes, I remember. Um and and Spock says some like Kirk says something like, Did you think I was gonna hit him or something? And Spock says, I think I you know, I did think you might and Kirk was like, You're right, I did want to hit him or whatever he said. I'm like paraphrasing, but like um <laughs> yeah. like basically Spock did think that Kirk was going to smack someone down, you know? So I thought that was very funny. In epic myth, especially in epic poetry, there is always, almost always, like 99% of the time, a relationship between, a strong, close bond relationship between two men. And I think, especially when it comes to ancient Greece and ancient Greek epic um, poetry, I think this is because in the past, in ancient Greece, and there's quite a lot of ancient Rome, but especially in ancient Greece, um, men spend more time with each other than they did with members of the opposite sex. Um, so I think it was clo- it was easier to form bonds with other men. And I think men had more of a role in society. You know, they were citizens, they could vote, um, they could have different professions. 
unless of course you were a slave and then you couldn't vote at all and you weren't a citizen but um so they had more contact with each other they had more of a role in society um and they had more of a position as a person um especially in like ancient athens or ancient sparta so you find also in epics like the iliad obviously it's a prime example everyone knows about the great um relationship between patroclus and achilles um but there's lots of characters like that in in the iliad i mean odysseus i can't remember who it is now i completely forgotten this is shocking but odysseus also has his oh his own um friend who he calls a brother you know right. that he fights with they often fight in pairs these two men fighting together it's very much like gilgamesh these two men that are closer than brothers that have almost like uh, i would uh, almost like a romantic maybe not a sexual relationship but a romantic relationship you know like a a male romantic passionate like they really care about each other it's more than a friendship they're like they would die for each other they will fight with each other they will like spend all their time together um and that's something that i think is a stalwart part of an epic and and there's it often is that sort of slight area of maybe not innuendo necessarily but i, I suppose with you know with reinterpretations of those stories there's always this sort of question of how do we you know how do we come to understand that so like achilles and patroclus in in the iliad that can be you know, interpreted in, in various different ways, depending on, on what sort of version of that story you're looking at or, or how you're kind of um, reading that. But but certainly, I think with Gilgamesh and, and Kidu, there's there, there's a closeness to that relationship that is unusual from our modern perspective, in a way, between these these two male heroes, maybe. And they do, you certainly you get the sense they don't need anyone else. They don't need, you know, they don't, they, they're not they're not really interested in anything else uh, for most of the poem. Yeah. And I think, I think it's very interesting that you should say this because I'm um, just going to go off on a tangent, but I was, I just recently um, started watching um, the series, the Vikings on Amazon um, prime. And there is a, a very intense male relationship between a, a, a Christian priest called Athelstan and the um, sort of, main viking character who's called ragnar lothbrook and these mm-hmm. two men spend a lot of time with each other and they spend a lot of time looking at each other and they spend a lot of time talking to each other and um spending time uh, fighting together and talking together and reading and coming up with ideas together um and they express a lot of great affection for each other but i and un- what i understand about reading about the the program was that the producers and um, warned the writers that um they couldn't make it too overt because they wanted to make sure that the audience would accept a relationship between two men there's no indication that these two men are in any sort of um sexual relationship but they're obviously they care deeply for each other and i've always thought that a little bit about kirk and spock i've never thought of them as being in a a physical relationship but i've always thought of them having a real love for each other i mean kirk is devastated when spock dies and he risks his entire career and and his life to save spock you know um afterwards so in a similar way that I think that he would care for Bones as well. But I think with Spock and Kirk, you're right, it's much more intense. They're much more kind of almost separate halves of the same person almost in a way. Um, I think it's it's how we look in our modern day, how we look at the relationships between men. And um, in the past, it, people didn't ha- have as much, well, didn't have as many hang-ups about whether something was physical or something was sexual. And in the, in the way with Gilgamesh, um, Enkidu is civilized by his um sexual <laughs> encounter with um a, 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 a prostitute she's a prostitute isn't she she's like a she's or a priestess or a, a sort priestess. of i mean i think she's yes she's i don't think she gets paid for it she's a kind of yeah i mean 
I think that's a that's a, yeah maybe an interesting area of translation to try and work out exactly what she is. But she's she's a sort of devotee of Ishtar, uh, and Ishtar is Easter, right? It's the same kind of Ishtar as the is the sort of fertility and uh, all that sort of goddess. Is that right? Yeah, she's like she's like yeah, fertility, the goddess of love. Goddess, she's like isn't she the goddess of like erotic desire? I think as well. Yeah. So I feel like this woman, she's called Shamata. That she's, or she's kind of like a groupie almost. She's basically, anyway. Her, but you're right. Her role in the story is to kind of, interestingly, is to kind of uh, sort of civilize the wild man by offering herself to him. And they have. I mean, I, I said this is a very strange and kinky poem. They have sex for seven days, I think, nonstop. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, and then he sort of breaks off in the middle because he he sees a. a farmer or something so, so someone coming through the wood and he wants to ask them a question about what's going on in the city and then the sort of story picks up again but um and he, just yeah. leaves, he just leaves her in the woods he's like you know see you yeah. later <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but yeah that, um, the, the idea that like in that situation sex is a civilizing force you know sex is something yeah. that is revered it's something that um is uh, not to be it's something that's not people aren't ashamed of it's not it's not something that um uh, I would say that people are scared about talking about, and that was very much the ancient world. What we conceive now to be something that, you know, what we conceive to be um, homosexuality or we conceive to be bisexuality, they didn't have the same concept in ancient Greece. Mm, not a, not at all. So Patroclus and Achilles, they could have a physical relationship. They could not have a physical relationship. It was the love between them that mattered, rather than whether or not they were sexual partners. And I think, in a way, that's a little bit kind of echoed in some of the relationships between the men in star trek like it's like a uh, it's a definitely a love but um it seems strange that everyone has to constantly define it all the time i suppose but that's the world that we live in now so well you get that in deep space nine as well don't you with bashir and o'brien there's this kind of and again there's that sort of innuendo or maybe not innuendo exactly but there's a, a kind of running joke almost about you know, the fact that O'Brien would rather spend time with Bashir than with his wife. And what does that mean? And and there's, you know, I, 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 there's no real suggestion that there's anything going on that we don't see between the two of them. But at the same time, there's this kind of acknowledgement that that relationship is unusually strong, unusually um, meaningful to them, I suppose, for, for a relationship between two male friends. But it's also nice as well, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a good example to, I would say, young men or boys who are watching this show you know who who um maybe don't have that many close male friends i think that's one of the things that um in my own social circle the men that i have uh, you know that i know one of the things they do mention again and again is how they don't feel like they have any very close friends that they can talk to um whereas that that isn't something that the women that i'm friends with have ever said and I think it's because it's appropriate, more appropriate, I suppose, in our society for women to be more open with each other than for men to be open with each other. So it's nice to have an example of like Bashir and O'Brien, like talking to each other about all their problems and, you know, being really supportive of each other. And I guess that's, could you see that in Gilgamesh? I mean, maybe. <laughs> I feel well, like... supportive, they're supportive in a kind of more like, in a you battle. know, okay, you fight on that side and I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll come from the other side and, and stab them in the back kind of way. <laughs> they work together, certainly, and they seem quite happy in each other's company. So, you know, so that's something, I guess. I mean, it's interesting, I, I guess, just thinking about these epic heroes and thinking about, um, you know, that kind of relationship. I mean, so in Gilgamesh, for a, a large, for the, for the most sort of heroic, in a sense, part of the story, insofar as it involves battling monsters and stuff, he is very much in this kind of partnership. 
in some ways, maybe though, that's, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You know, you said it often in these in these Greek stories. There's a kind of a sidekick. I suppose you get that with like Batman and Robin or or, or whatever. Um, and you get that in Beowulf as well. But I feel like Beowulf is much more the idea of the kind of lone hero who who sort of rides into town and, and sorts everything out. I mean, I know he comes he he comes in the poem with a kind of whole ship full of people. But other than one of them, his friend, um, who's What's his name? Wiglaf or Wug- Wugliff or something like that. Anyway, he has a friend who <laughs> kind of plays plays a supportive kind of sidekick role a bit later on. But for the most of the poem, he's very much the, you know, he's the man. He's kind of standing alone. He's the hero who goes in on his own and fights the monster and then comes back and tells everyone about it. Um, why don't we move on a little bit and talk talk a bit more about Beowulf and Heroes and Demons, the Voyager episode that it... Um, crops up in now now this poem actually i do this is about i mean this is going back a bit further than my english degree although i did when i was at university i did uh i tried we had to do as part of my course we had to do a foreign language um and i hadn't done any foreign languages for a level so i all my languages were pretty rusty and the only language that you could do from scratch was old english which is quite different from modern english and is the language that the poem beowulf is written in so beowulf is kind of the the earliest i suppose or one of the earliest literary texts in english uh but it's not in english that that we can understand so anyway i spent a term struggling to get my head around um, Old English, hoping that I, it would enable me to read Beowulf in the original, but I, I was hopeless at it and I ended up quitting it. So I basically, my, the only line of Beowulf that I can translate is the first line. And the first line of Beowulf, I can tell you, it goes, what we gardener in year dagum, which means, well, first of all, the first word what is basically untranslatable because it doesn't correspond to anything <laughs> in modern language, but it is similar to the word what, and it basically just means listen or here we go or, you know, whatever. Um, it's, so it's a kind of a throat clearing word in a sense. Um, we gardena in year dargum, uh, the, uh, the spear danes, the gardena, uh, in year dargum in the years gone by. That's a lovely word. I think this idea, this word for the, for the, the you know, the days of yore, for the days of the past. Um, but anyway, that's, so that's, uh, that was, that's as far that's as I can get good. with Beowulf in the original. That's pretty <laughs> but good. There, I mean, there are I many wonderful you, translations around. So. That's pretty good. I think, I think you only need the first line because there you go. Yeah. I think the first line <laughs> will just start the conversation off and then, and then everyone's mm-hmm. be like, how did you do that? You know? I don't think you need to know anymore. Just don't tell people you don't know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Just say, yeah, that's a teaser. <laughs> but anyway, so so the story of Beowulf basically is, is very much that kind of traditional hero fighting the monsters. And in this instance, it's a hero coming from the outside and uh, not so much that there is a dragon later on, but, you know, the kind of archetype is the hero comes and slays the dragon. In this instance, it's this monster called Grendel, who is this kind of devil-like creature that's tormenting uh, this this uh, community and comes at night and kills people. It, it's quite sort of graphic and horrific. And, and obviously we see it in the Voyager episode, Heroes and Demons, where Harry Kim is playing this Apollo program um, and the the monster becomes sort of merged with these photonic beings i think and and uh people end up disappearing so it's a kind of holodeck uh you know peril episode um how do you think this uh how do you think this episode sort of compares with with darmok in terms of the way it kind of brings out this idea of heroism and 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 the epic hero and how it kind of brings in that sort of cultural um touchstone in quite a different way um I actually really dislike this episode. Do you? <laughs> yeah, I really dislike it. Um, 
And maybe it's just the idea of Harry Kim, like, being Beowulf that freaks me out. I don't know. I just can't imagine him as Beowulf. Um, totally implausible. Totally yeah. implausible. <laughs> um, no, I, I just like it for several reasons. Um, one, I think that um, it's not a very good representation of Beowulf itself. I, I just think of Beowulf as a much more frightening, more savage, I don't know, just more dark kind of story than than what's in Voyager. I understand that it's Voyager, you know, I have to make it like a PG rating so people can watch it. Yeah. But um, Grendel, they completely kind of get rid of the sort of ex- complex complexity that Grendel had. Is, it, that is Grendel. I mean, Grendel has a mother, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is like one of the only times I've ever heard of a of a hero, uh, not a hero, sorry, of a monster, a terrifying, scary monster that a hero is supposed to kill and defeat. Actually, having a mother, having a mother makes Grendel, I don't know, a little bit more human, more human? relatable, more yeah, more, more relatable. Yeah, just yeah. Ma- maybe more of a person in my mind than um, than some uh, something else like um, I'm trying to think like a Minotaur or something, you know, some other big monster. Um, there is some some interesting aspects that are similar. So one of the big things that Beowulf, a uh, character flaw that Beowulf has is that he's very proud and he likes to boast. And that's definitely like the Doctor in Voyager is definitely somebody who likes to boast. Although with him, I feel it's a little bit more innocent, really, the Doctor boasting. Like it's like he's doing it without thinking. He's kind of unconscious to it, really. Whereas Beowulf, I feel like he's very proud and he's... he's um very aware of his achievements and kind of also aware that he's boasting, but he's doing it anyway. Um, I did, there was a very good point in the episode where Chakotay, and I wrote it down, he says, every culture has its demons. Um, they embody the darkest emotions of its people, giving them physical form in heroic literature as a way of explaining those feelings. Um, and I thought that was an interesting idea that, um, that the monsters in these epics um, or, in, or in Beowulf um, are an example of, the dark feelings or, or the dark or the nightmarish ideas that perhaps maybe that culture had and they person person uh, personified it in, in in the character of grendel that was a nice idea although i'm not sure it's necessarily so true um i i guess in a way i feel like the doctor is a very brave character but i feel mm. like he's he's almost braver because of his intelligence not so i think putting a sword in the doctor's hands is a mistake I feel like, um, and I feel like that's what they did in this in this episode. They put a sword in his hands, and they tried to make him an epic hero. You know, and um, he's a different kind of hero. I think he's definitely heroic, but whether he's heroic in the same sense of like Beowulf or um, or, or, or Gilgamesh or you know Achilles or or even a Viking, <laughs> a Viking warrior, um, um, I, I don't think it works so well. He's very much a fish out of water, and there's something. Funny but they do that. get comedy out but of that. I mean, they, they do get comedy get, out of it. Yeah, you're and right. there's a kind of misunderstanding between the. One of the things I quite like about this episode is the way it does. This hollow novel plays out very much like a computer game, insofar as you can see the kind of characters. First of all, they they sort of repeat these little kind of loops that they're on when each character turns up, but also they, you know, the way that they have to. Uh, because they because he's in the role of the hero and they have to treat him as a hero, even when he does something quite unheroic or says something quite unheroic, like he talks about curing some virus, they have to kind of respond as implausibly as if they're kind of impressed by it in the way that they would be if he'd said, "Oh, I, I you know, <laughs> cut the head off three dragons in one swoop or whatever." Um, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't hate this episode. I, I never particularly loved it. I always, I was always slightly puzzled as to why, because I think it. 
it always had a bit of a, I don't know if it's a fan favourite exactly, but I think a lot of people have a lot of affection for it. Um, I do think Robert Picardo is funny in it, but I find it a bit silly. I mean, it's certainly not, I mean, it's, it's an unfair comparison comparing it to Darmok, because Darmok is quite a serious episode and a really thoughtful, sophisticated, uh, you, you know, meaningful episode, whereas this is kind of a bit of fluff. Um but it, but you're right. The presentation of Beowulf in the episode is a very light. I mean, even just like that forest, that forest does not look, uh, I don't know. It, it's a kind of Star Trek version of it. And it's very kind of, um, had the, the rough edges smoothed off. Um, which is a shame because one of the things that's quite nice about these, you know, ancient works of literature in a sense is that they, they are a bit kind of gnarly and a bit kind of strange and a bit, and rich with, um, you know, surprising, strange elements somehow. And I, I guess when you when you take it to the kind of, you know, PG version, you you sort of lose something of that. I mean, I think in terms of the Doctor as a hero, I, I think one of the things that's quite interesting is that, you know, Beowulf as a hero, although he's very proud, actually, I mean, to say in Beowulf's defence, there is something a little bit kind of Starfleet about him in that he is the hero who, you know, hears there's a problem uh somewhere else decides i'm going to go and help he he you know he travels i mean i know he's sort of after glory and so on but he is also coming to this community and offering himself to do something quite dangerous to to help them so there is something kind of there is an element of of something quite noble in that but i think it's kind of interesting when you look at like you know we're talking with Darmok, what's what what is heroism for captain picard what is heroism for the tamarian captain etc what is heroism for the doctor in this episode is it ends in this kind of um devil in the dark moment basically where they realize that actually the the alien force that that you know that had been thought of as this monster that had kind of taken the role of Grendel in the story um, was actually just responding to the fact that they had basically abducted several of its people. Um, so in the kind of, you know, exactly as in the devil in the dark, it turns out that the humans or the Starfleet people or, or the Federation people or whatever are the ones who have caused a kind of injury uh, unwittingly to this alien. And then that the, what's necessary is to kind of make peace. And so at the end of the episode, the doctor doesn't slay the monster in the way that Beowulf does. He makes peace with the monster by, um, you know, giving back the, the people that have been or the beings that have been taken. Um, so it's kind of interesting that we, you know, that and that that is Starfleet heroism in a sense is, you know, coming to a point of understanding. And Janeway talks about this in the episode. You know, she says, you know, this is a, a great moment in a sense because we've we've transformed our relationship with these beings and we've kind of done the right thing in the end and so on. Um, so I suppose it does sort of point up the difference between that kind of, uh, you know, traditional sort of epic hero um, and the kind of more modern um, well-intentioned, decent uh, Starfleet version who is is thinking of others more than more than himself. And I suppose it's interesting, you know, when you say Harry Kim is this totally implausible Beowulf character, it it is weird. Well, I mean, you it, it makes more sense to me that Tom Paris wants to go and pretend to be Captain Proton. Harry Kim wanting to be um, Beowulf does seem like he doesn't know himself very well somehow do you know what i mean it's just like it's the most improbable casting um unfortunately we only actually see him doing it for about like two seconds at the end i don't know i think it's it's problematic using epic um myths and epic heroes in star trek and i think that's ultimately what i drew from both these episodes um mm -hmm. and i would say from the widest franchise um 
I think epic myth and epic heroes are have have a great place in in like literary and oral tradition, and I think um, the stories are, are rich, they're fascinating, they're exciting, and they do have moral messages. But I'm not sure they have a place in in Star Trek in il- illustrating a moral or didactic point in an episode. I would I would just I would argue that the epic heroes of Gilgamesh, of Beowulf, of the Iliad, of the Odyssey, you know, the Aeneid, you, you name it, you go on, um, actually have more of a place in like the mirror universe of of, of Star Trek than the actual right. prime universe. Um, the values and the morality and this is a good thing this sounds very negative but this is a good thing because star trek is a utopian ideal and so the the epic heroes of of gilgamesh or ancient greece that's not our future that's our past i mean there's individuals who are out to seek glory who who um achieve great deeds through physical might and through physical force um they aren't the compromising negotiating curious um intelligent um people of the future you know we're talking about a different world and a different society where resources were scarce you know where most conflicts were resolved in some sort of battle um you know where there were slaves and there were masters and there was massive inequality compared to the future um which we all hope well i don't know if we all hope but most of us hope will be like star trek where um you know we'll be exploring um, the universe to seek out knowledge, you know, um, um, and um, to better ourselves and to build a, a more cohesive, communal and healthier society. Um, Achilles wasn't trying to build a healthier society. And to a certain extent, Gilgamesh wasn't either. And although Beowulf does try and help a community rid itself of a demon, I agree with you there. Like he's not, he's not going to stick around and rule that society, you know, and impose laws. And it wasn't like he gathered a whole bunch of people to help him. You know, he's very much going to go out and do it himself, you know. Um, a starship captain can't pilot a starship by himself. And every single time a starship captain does pilot a starship by his, him, his or his or herself, it's almost always because they're at the end of a battle and everybody's left in their escape pods and that starship is going to end up being rammed into something else and exploding. <laughs> You yeah. know, if you if you think about the beginning of um, the most recent um, Kelvin universe film, you know, uh, the most recent Star Trek film, the first one by J.J. Abrams. I mean, like they show they say they show uh, George Kirk. I think it's George Kirk, isn't it? Um, piloting the starship by himself, but he does it to save everybody. He ends up dying. I mean, the closest epic heroes I could think of. Kirk is close in some ways. You know, he's very impulsive. He can get very angry. You know, he does often resolve things through fighting. Um, he's got this close relationship with Spock. Um, but most epic heroes I think I could find in Star Trek were ones that were villains, actually. I think that Khan has a lot in common with someone like Gilgamesh or someone like Agamemnon, you know, from from uh, Iliad. I would say some characters maybe in Star Trek have more in common with someone like Odysseus who uses his cunning and his brains to get by. But even him, you know, he, he he kills a lot of people in the Odyssey. He's ruthless in the Odyssey. In fact, one of the last things he does at the end of the poem is hang a whole bunch of handmaids, yeah. you know, serving women because they were, well, I won't go into it, but because they were doing something that they were disloyal to him. So he, he hangs a whole bunch of them. And that's kind of how it ends, this happy ending, you know. There is more after that. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's one of the I last don't know things if he does. Have you read that Margaret Atwood book, which is a, a kind of retelling of the Odyssey from uh, oh, no, Odysseus's wife? 
Penelope's Penelope perspective. Ed, right? The yeah, Penelope I mean, it's Ed, quite yeah. interesting. In ter- I mean, this is a real digression, but in terms of because it presents a chorus of the of the hanged maids and they sort of they offer their perspective on things and they also um sort of torment Odysseus in the afterlife in a way they're kind of pursuing him basically uh shaming him in a sense for doing this and definitely you know from her perspective um I mean it's it, it's kind of a you know feminist rereading of of the Odyssey in a sense and you, you know and, and the fact that these maids you know are hanged kind of unjustifiably really is is a big part of that it also that book it's quite interesting because um i sort of feel in star trek the, the character who connects the most closely to odysseus for me is definitely captain kirk because you know partly you've got this idea of the kind of ladies man and odysseus although he's devoted to his wife seems to spend a lot of his journey home sleeping <laughs> with various you know goddesses or, or it's nymphs true. or yeah, whatever they true. are you know he's 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 kind of um constantly waylaid by these women who want to sleep with him um he's also very cunning he's a great bluffer you know and captain kirk's kind of signature thing is he's he, you know he's brilliant at bluffing he i mean that's the only way he manages to have a chance with khan for example in the wrath of khan is by bluffing him quite effectively um so he's got that kind of charming cunning um aspect to him that 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 is maybe a little bit um a little bit like Odysseus, but it's interesting when you said uh, you you said you know these epic heroes they're not what we want they're not the people of the future in terms of Star Trek and I think that's true they're not the human people of the future but a lot of those qualities that you were describing in these kind of epic heroes you know going out seeking glory trying to win uh, w- you know win your glory in battle and make a name for yourself that's the Klingons basically the Klingons are the kind of inheritors in a sense of that whole kind of that kind of uh heroic epic code kind of thing um and it's interesting you know watching uh, i was watching the film troy recently um in preparation for this and that really kind of beats you over the head with this idea about you know everyone's trying to make a name for themselves and accumulate glory and accumulate honor so that their name lives on after their death that's what they keep talking about is you you know doing these doing these the reason for doing these things is is not even the ostensible reason you know say in the um siege of troy there's this ostensible reason that um you you know some um that paris has has stolen helen and and they're going off to avenge this wrong it's very clear for someone like achilles that that's not the motivating factor it's all about this kind of idea of of seeking glory and, and making a name for yourself in a sense and that certainly is very different to the way the Federation operate in Star Trek, but it's not different to the way the Klingons operate. Um, I think one of the things that, that struck me, though, is, is another episode, another Voyager episode, actually, that I was looking at this week, um, which is the episode Muse, uh, where it, there's this kind of, Balana becomes this um, this muse to this poet in this kind of uh, society. It seems very much to be modelled on kind of ancient Greece and has this theatre tradition that seems quite similar to the kind of ancient Greek theatre tradition. And, and he's basically telling... Voyager stories that he's gleaned from her logs and from talking to her and, and recreating them on the stage for his his patron who he who's uh, sort of sponsoring his performances. But one of the things that's interesting about that is although there's this kind of uh, ancient world set up and this planet that appears to be very kind of redolent of, of ancient Greek culture, um, by the end of it, he has completely absorbed the kind of Starfleet values. Um, and he even writes a story that sort of goes further than then Star Trek even goes. He writes a story where Janeway makes peace with the Borg Queen as this kind of, as the kind of perfect embodiment of um, 
Star Trek philosophy in a sense. You know, that that is the ultimate thing is that we make peace with our enemies. And then at the very end, um, in pretty much the final scene in his play, he describes Voyager going forward to the gleaming cities of Earth where peace reigns and hatred has no home. And that is absolutely the kind of Star Trek heroism in a sense. You know, that's the world that we're all kind of working towards. Those are the the kind of, that's the moral code that we live by in a sense. So that I think is an interesting episode because it manages to tie the kind of um, structure and the formula and so on of these kind of ancient uh, literary traditions and literary styles with very much kind of bringing in the kind of Star Trek philosophy into that, sort of importing that in there and 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 reshaping those stories in in that image. Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree with that. Um, yeah, like you say, it's like taking a a, a Starfleet ideal, a, a, a Star Trek um, philosophy, and sticking it in an ancient context. But I I would say actually that it's easier to do that with um, this kind of setup, partly because by the time plays were being shown in ancient Athens you know the plays are like Sophocles or Euripides or Aeschylus um we're talking about a different kind of world than the world that Homer's epics were composed or written in mm-hmm. um or even a different kind of world than Gilgamesh so and um, obviously ancient Athens was still a pretty barbaric place by today's modern standards um there was a huge percentage of people who were slaves and women had absolutely no rights whatsoever but um they were there was much i mean there were city states in in greece so there were each city state had its different rules and different culture and everything like sparta obviously was very different than athens but there, there was a sense of community there was a sense of duty to the state there was a sense of being a citizen i mean people it was very democratic in the sense that people everyone who was a citizen got an equal vote um regardless of wealth you know there was um great oratory happening in terms of politicians giving great speeches there was lawyers and law courts and there was um, it was quite a different sort of society than the society um, of what we're talking about, like ancient Mycenae, you know, which would have been like Agamemnon, Agamemnon's culture, Agamemnon's society. So the a lot of the plays that you if you read ancient Greek plays, tragedy and comedy, a lot of them do have a moral story. Um, they don't all end in peace. A lot of them do end in bloodshed. But there's often a story about about pride about hubris about um about doing duty to your family about um you know not being greedy in terms of wealth by taking care of each other in the community it's not the same utopian message that you would get in star trek but it's more of a direction like in that direction it's more of like a like a like a small journey in that direction very much like the iliad and the odyssey is very different so the odyssey is about uh you know a hero returning home about his about his companions on the journey, most of which end up dead, but we won't go there, um, you know. And about his, his his society back home, you know. And he, he's someone who, I mean, Odysseus can compromise, you know. He can discuss, he can weasel his way out of situations. He's very clever. The Iliad, which is before is set before that and was composed before that, is a different kind of story. The Iliad itself isn't the story of Troy. The Iliad itself is a poem about um, Achilles' anger. The first line of it is like sing goddess the anger of Peleus' son Achilles it's all about his anger and it's not even set um at the end of the war so I have to I was a bit shocked reading the Iliad in preparation for this that I thought the two things I thought I knew happened in the Iliad were that there was there was a Trojan horse and that Achilles was going to get shot in in his uh you know in his foot and neither of those things happened so <laughs> that was a bit of a disappointment the whole poem is about his anger it's all about yeah. how his anger and his pride leads to the death 
of of many of his companions, many of his his own army, his own Greeks, you know. So um, it's a very different kind of story than the Odyssey. And so then going on forward from that, like the the um, the, the great ancient Greek theatre and the plays are actually quite different from the Odyssey. They're, you're getting more and more and more towards uh, a civilized society. Not that the people in the Iliad want civilized, but you know, you're getting more and more more towards a communal, cohesive idea of living. Um, and so I think that actually it works really well in Muse, having a, a Greek set, uh, like a, a Greek theatre setting. Mm. Well, it's interesting. I mean, all these stories, to some extent, I think there's an element of, I suppose there are, there are codes that these heroes live by, or there are codes that are violated. So in the Iliad, for example, the, you know, Achilles, I mean, Achilles is somewhat like Gilgamesh, he's sort of almost... Uh, kind of in the balance is he a hero or is he you know is he the monster in the story or is he the hero in the story because his because as you say his rage is such that he he behaves in kind of unacceptable ways so for example when he kills Hector um, he doesn't give him the kind of noble uh, respect of a kind of decent burial He, he drags him around the city and this kind of act of you know, it's seen as a kind of, it's definitely breaking a kind of, uh, a sort of moral code in a sense, the way that he behaves. And in the end, he relents. But I mean, you, you know, he's kind of, he's transgressed in a sense. In the Odyssey, again, there's this constant theme of um, the idea of, of hospitality, of the way that you treat guests and of kind of, of your responsibility as a host and your responsibility as a guest. And it comes up in the, in terms of the suitors back at a, at, um, Odysseus's home who are kind of abusing the hospitality of his wife by kind of eating him out of out of house and home in a sense it but it comes up in other stories I think in there as well you know for example the, the famous story of the Cyclops there's a kind of element of um, this idea of that the role of the host and the role of the guest and people kind of violating these these kind of uh, mores in a sense and the and the trouble that ensues if they're if they're not followed I guess in in Gilgamesh, there's the sense of the bad tyrant and that the fact that the tyrant sort of has to be, um, you know, has to be sort of brought, made more civilised, I suppose. It's what we might call civilised behaviour. But of course, what's civilised varies according to what society we're, we're living in at the time. I mean, one of the things that struck me reading about Beowulf was that actually was... Um, an area of, of literature that I've always been very interested in is kind of medieval, uh, medieval romance and medieval sort of Arthurian stories and so on. Um, and there's a big contrast if you think of the hero in Beowulf who's very much out for himself and out for glory. And then, you know, a few hundred years later, you get into kind of medieval stories um, and the kind of Arthurian knights who live by a real code and a real, um, you, you know, the, the the kind of the sort of order of the round table and the kind of nobility of it. Um, and if you think of, for example, the poem of Gawain and the Green Knight, which is another, you know, epic uh, story written in Middle English. So this is more, you know, even more part of our kind of literary tradition. Um, and and also a poem that calls back to, all the way back to Troy, because the opening of that poem, the opening of Gawain and the Green Knight, um, I'll give you another first line here, uh, <laughs> is, Sith and the Sedge and the assault was cessed at Troy, after the siege and the assault was finished at Troy. Um, and it goes on, uh, so it's about the, the burg Britained and burnt to bronzes and askers, the, 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 the city burned down. So it talks about the city burning down. And then it talks about Aeneas. And Aeneas, of course, in the Aeneid, which is the kind of Roman epic, is the one who kind of leaves Troy and founds 
well, the sort of pre-Roman Empire, I suppose that's right, isn't it? He's kind of um, yeah, he's like the one of the founders of Rome, yeah. the sort of origin myth of of Rome, and then it goes through, and this is all just in the first stanza, so it goes through talking about Aeneas and 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 Romulus and the founding of Rome, and then it talks about uh, the, the you know France, and it says, and o- over the French flood, Felix Brutus. Uh, on many bockies full broad Britain he set his with win, where war and rack and wonder by Scythes hat I'm reading this by Scythes hats <laughs> wont therein and oft both bliss and blunder that's easy enough full skeet have skifted sin so it's so it's this Arthurian story but it's very much setting it in terms of what's known as the translatio imperii the translation of empire and this idea that over history the same kind of that the kind of the cultural capital of the world in a sense the kind of the empire that's that's kind of ruling in a sense is translated from one country to another and what that poem is very much doing is saying that the same kind of you know whatever it is that troy stood for whatever it is that rome stood for you know in the ancient worlds is translated and is now in britain in the arthurian court but what you see in the Gawain story is here is a here is a, a quest you know it's similar to beowulf in terms of it's a hero it's a knight who has to go up on a quest but Really, his job is not to slay a monster. It's to kind of um, preserve his own his own code and his own sort of sense of chastity. So he goes he goes on this this mission to to see this green knight, uh, but he gets waylaid on the way and he ends up staying with this very generous host. Um, and the host's wife is kind of constantly flirting with him, and it's all about really whether Gawain will give in to temptation and you know sleep with the guy's wife or not. And and the the result of of the kind at the end of the trial with the Green Knight is connected because it turns out that this is all a sort of in a very Star Trekky way is a sort of illusion that's being played out to kind of test him. And the the thing that's being tested is his kind of moral rectitude, is his chastity, is his his ability to kind of clamp down on his desire and do the right thing uh, because of the kind of code that he's signed up to and the kind of, you know, the ethics that he's that he believes in in terms of his society. And of course, this is a Christian epic. And essentially, this is a Christian society which has certain, uh, you know, moral views that are very different from these kind of ancient views. But at the same time, he's importing a lot of that idea of heroism, but but putting a very different spin on it. And certainly in terms of the motives, yes, you go out to achieve a level of glory, but you're also very much, you know, if you see someone in need, if you see someone who needs help, you help them. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't just act in your own interests. You act in the, in the interests of the greater good. You act for the round table. You act for your society. You, you know, you, you do, um, there's this kind of noble ideal. And of course, you know, then, you know, with Lancelot and Guinevere and so on, there's a kind of a crack in that in a sense, because people do have their own self-interests and their own desires. But to me, that kind of medieval worldview is much closer to the kind of federation ideal of these quite sort of noble ideals of these kind of these people who are heroic and brave, but they're in the service of these these beliefs that they they really hold very dear. It's funny that you should say that. Um because um, I've, my was first, my father first read me the Iliad when I was a child, like under the age of ten, and I remember very vividly. I had a children's version of the Iliad, and there was um, actual an actual photo, not actual picture, like artist interpretation of Hector being dragged um, behind um, Achilles' um, chariot. Well, you know, obviously while dead, so Hector's corpse being dragged 
um, around the walls of Troy, which I thought was a little bit graphic. And then looking back on it now, <laughs> it's a little bit graphic for like, yeah. I don't know, like an eight-year-old kid or something. But I loved it. But that was around the same time that I was watching like the original series of Star Trek. Because mm-hmm. um, I started out with the original series when I was little. Right. And, um, and that's when I was also starting to watch, um, obviously this was many years after it was first broadcast because... I'm not a baby boomer, you know, it wasn't, well, I mean, actually you'd have to be a bit younger than a baby boomer, but anyway, um, I'm not that old, but um, I um, I remember then also watching some of the movies and I was around the same time that I was reading the Iliad with my dad that I watched Spock, you know, um, sacrifice himself in the Wrath of Khan and I was like completely like confused by these two conflicting ideas of what it meant to be heroic because I, I always liked Achilles the most. Achilles was my favorite, you know, when I was a kid. Because um, he's the he's sort of the hero of the Iliad. He's the main character. Um, and then years later, when I was in high school, and I did actually study Sagawain in the Green Knight as part of my um, A levels, which is this like for the American listeners, this is like high school exams that you have at the end of high school, secondary school. Um, we did Sagawain in the Green Knight, and I was starting to watch Star Trek: Next Generation around that time. I'd watched it before, but I was watching it every night because it was on BBC Two. You'd come from from school, you know, on a Wednesday, and it was on BBC Two after The Simpsons. Um, and I associated Data with Sigourney mm. just because of he's that, very chaste and sort that, of yeah, 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 that chasteness, that kind of almost like that kind of innocence in a way, you know. Um, and Data himself also like is on a quest, you know. I mean, I know this is very different than Sigourney, but. Um, on a quest to sort of be true to himself, but be be more, you know, be more moral, maybe to be more than what he is, you know, to, to achieve a higher state, which I kind of thought what Sagawin was kind of trying to do himself. Um, so it's weird. I did associate like these different epic poems with Star Trek, even though the characters in Star Trek themselves are quite, can be quite different. Um, because Star Trek itself is, I guess, I suppose, just one long quest isn't it really it's this quest for knowledge it's this quest to build a more utopian society it's this quest for um exploration i mean that's the main dialogue that's said at the beginning of the original series and also beginning of next generation you know to go where no one has gone before and no man has gone before um it sounds like a big quest you know it is absolutely, um, which yeah. is very actually weirdly very heroic even though i spent the most of this podcast talking about how <laughs> star trek characters are not epic heroes Maybe Star Trek itself, as a franchise, is it's very definitely very mythical. It's very mythic, but maybe definitely. it is very heroic, and it's definitely epic. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, and maybe that's the key thing is that it's not so much about the the people embodying these these qualities, the epic heroes, but something kind of broader. And I think certainly, if you look at some of these epic poems and you look at Star Trek, you can see kind of tropes that that come up again and again. I mean. One of the things that I noticed, you know, looking at a lot of these stories is this idea, because um, I was watching Barge of the Dead as well, where Belana goes to the, the underworld, which is, again, is sort of very Greek underworld with a, you know, a, a river, like the river Styx and a kind of fairy person and so on. But um, this idea of meeting the dead parent, which comes up again and again, because uh, Aeneas meets his dead father uh, in the Aeneid. I think, doesn't Odysseus meet his, his yeah, dead mother, Odysseus, I think, in the Odyssey? Yeah, yeah. This idea of sort of going... Uh, you know that so that's a kind of trope in a sense that comes up in these epic stories and that that you know interestingly recurs in that in that Voyager episode um, I think we you know we talked a little bit about monsters I mean I think Star Trek I don't think really does monsters in the way that um, 
in the kind of fantasy sense. I mean, the other big epic in in kind of modern culture, I suppose, is like the Lord of the Rings. That's the kind of modern version of a lot of these, of of something like Beowulf in a sense. Um, And it's very much that kind of, you know, ancient medieval sort of mindset. And there you have these kind of big, you know, trolls and dragons and all these sorts of things. I mean, Star Trek generally, I would say, slightly steers clear of that kind of thing. We don't so much get monsters... I mean, in the J.J. Abrams film that you mentioned, there is a monster. And I always thought, from the first time I saw that film, I sort of felt like this doesn't belong to me in a Star Trek film. This looks like something that's come out of Star Wars or, or you know, some other kind of sci-fi fantasy kind of thing. It's, it, it isn't really in keeping with what we know about the Star Trek universe, generally speaking. I mean, when we see things that are kind of fulfilling the role of monsters in Star Trek... They're things like the crystalline entity, or they're things like the in Voyager. There's that episode where they get sucked into this nebula that's kind of eating. It's, it's described as a pitcher plant alien. It's this kind of spatial phenomena. So they're phenomena, I suppose. They're mysterious phenomena that have, you know, maybe malign uh, elements to them. But they're kind of um, they're sort of inscrutable. They're kind of uh, mysterious. They're they're very strange. They're very alien. They're not sort of hulking monstrous things that thud around and smash people and bite their heads off and you know in the way that these monsters you know certainly like the monsters in Beowulf are very kind of gruesome and bodily and kind of um physically threatening uh in a way that is sort of unusual in Star Trek I think the Cyclops would be you know another example from the Odyssey um Although, again, there's the kind of element of, if you're thinking about sort of tropes and themes and so on, the story of the Cyclops is very much this that kind of story of going into the lair of the beast. It's the sort of, you know, it's a bit like Hansel and Gretel or something like that. Um, you, you know, and we do see something of that, I think, when we, you first get, they first start going to the Borg Cube, for example, in The Best of Both Worlds. There's something of that kind of, that idea of this huge uh you know there is a monstrosity to the borg certainly and that 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 comes across maybe in that being very small and puny and weak and at the mercy of this kind of dangerous force that is is somewhat difficult to understand but we don't tend to see you know and and maybe this is to do with the expense of uh, you, you know whatever the the CGI would cost or whatever the the practical effects or whatever would cost we we had the Mugatu or uh, in the original series but um typically we don't see too much of that we we had in the animated series actually those purple dragons which they used they they seem to use in almost every other episode because obviously once they animated them the first time they thought they might as well Get some good a, use out of them. Isn't there a tar monster though? Like some sort of tar monster that kills Tasha? Well, that's yeah. true. Yes, that's but, true. Uh, Armus. Even, that, that yeah, that is a proper monster. You're right. That's, yeah, that's... But it doesn't really work that well in terms of like I sort of feel like Tasha Yar deserved a little bit of a better death than that. To be yeah. honest, but um, I guess you know, I mean, <laughs> she didn't have much of a choice, I suppose. But again, it's sort of amorphous, and it's kind of it's it's a monster, but it's also a kind of conglomeration of different people's psychic energy being. Do you know what I mean? There's a kind of there's again something slightly unearthly about it. Do you know what I mean? Compa- even compared to, say, dragons or something, which are, you know, obviously sort of fantastical, but at the same time, they are basically, they're beasts that are, you know, they're similar to lizards. They're similar to, you know, as we know, they're similar to dinosaurs. And and people believe, you know, people, I mean, we think of dragons as fantasy, but the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was basically a work of history, records you know, people, sightings of dragons, uh, which, you know, I don't know what they were, comets or something probably, but people, you know, genuinely believed in their existence. Um, See, I would argue, 
Yeah, see, I would argue that's because I think Star Trek's rooted in science. And I would argue that's because mm. of what Gene Roddenberry wanted initially with the original series. That's what he'd envisioned. He envisioned less, like scientific future um, without too much religion dabbling in the way things were working, way things were run, in in, in the running of a starship, in the in the in the stories of of of, of his series. Um, I think when you start to get more into Deep Space Nine with the religion of the Bajorans, um, one of the things that struck me is really monster-like. Maybe not so much, big, not, not like dragons or or some sort of monster animal, but I felt that um, the Paraths, you know, when they take over someone's body. Um, like the prime example is Descartes. Um, I thought he he became a little bit Grendel-like, to be honest. Yes. Yeah, demonic, sort of demonic. Of, yeah, yeah. and um, pure evil kind of. So I wonder if that's because not that these beasts, um, these dragons, or these or these um, these monsters in uh, in um, you know myths and stories aren't all. They're not all linked to religion, of course. But I wonder if the the monsters or the threats in Star Trek are very scientific based. You know, they're alien. Mm. Like you said, there's some sort of plasma force. There's some sort of entity because they have to all be scientifically explained. And even if it's not realistic science, even if it's science fiction, like Technobabble, somehow a character is going to be able to explain them. Whereas it's awfully hard to explain a dragon. I mean, that's one of the things I think that sometimes I struggle with when it comes to something like Game of Thrones I kind of forgot after the first series or so of Game of Thrones that um, this was supposed to be like a science, uh, a fantasy world, you know, because they're all doing things like normal humans would do. I mean, maybe not normal people, but, you know, they're fighting, <laughs> they're yeah. sleeping with people, you know, they're having this politics, you know, they're fighting over, over a throne. Um, and then all of a sudden there's a, there's a dragon there and there's like zombies, like wintry zombies. And you're like, what? You know, so... Um, I think a dragon in this, I agree with you, a dragon in a Star Trek universe wouldn't work. I mean, that's the whole point of science fiction, right? Which is, I mean, to a certain extent, you can have insane, weird, interesting things, but it's got to make narrative sense in that world. So there's no enterprise up there right now, you know, in in space right now, in our world at the moment, there is no Starship Enterprise. So um, we know it's not real. We know it's it's fiction, but the, the writers are so good at creating this de- in-depth, detailed, fictional world that it make everything that happens in that world makes like scientific and logistical sense. If you see what I'm saying, but yes. if a giant, fluffy, murderous rabbit started flying through space, and the Enterprise came in contact with this giant rabbit, you know, the the audience would suddenly sit up and be like, "What?" And they'd be jolted out of the universe, you know. They'd be jolted out of the out of the story because they would say that doesn't make sense because no one in Star Trek's ever talked about flying giant murderous rabbits in space. Mm. That seems... although, having said that, in the original series they did have a giant green hand. Yeah, that's and true. They did, yeah. they did have. I feel like the original series had some of the more uh, and the Weird animated stuff. series obviously had the more kind of fantastical stuff. And it's, it's interesting actually. I was talking before about you know captain kirk as odysseus and and that margaret atwood book that i mentioned the the other thing that margaret atwood does is sort of deconstructs this idea of of odysseus this kind of fantastical 
journey because obviously you know he meets the cyclops and he meets these sirens and he meets all these little monsters and so on um and she basically spins it as yeah well you know we know odysseus is a great storyteller and he, he likes to make himself sound good and so on and maybe he was actually just hanging out in bars and and visiting brothels and you, you know this kind of alternative version of why it took him 10 years to get home basically <laughs> and that this is just another one of his kind of you know sort of silver-tongued uh stories that he's come up with in a sense this fantastical story and you get that in star trek again when they talk about captain kirk in some of the later series uh and basically talking about things that happened in the original series there's this sort of element of well yeah we've read those logs you know we know what he says happened but you know is that really plausible so it's that kind of recognition that star trek itself kind of shifted into a more scientific i mean if you think of like the level of technobabble and so on more scientific more kind of technical uh in next gen and, and voyager particularly maybe deep space nine is a bit of a an aberration in some ways i mean you talked about the the par race. definitely the par race and the kind of demonic side of that is is a, a a bit of a new territory i think for star trek um and also of course you know thinking about these captains as as epic heroes you you know i talked a bit about captain kirk as an epic hero but Arguably, Cisco is is quite has strong links to being an epic hero because Cisco is a demigod, basically. You know, he's half god. We we discover later on, uh, as is Achilles is partly divine, isn't he? And um, or his mother is anyway. He has yeah, some no, kind Achilles of, is yeah, yeah divine. Yeah, he is, and um, so is Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is partly uh, you know divine as well. I think he's described as either one one third human and two parts god or two parts whatever anyway uh, and there's also that element i mean with those epic heroes gilgamesh and enkidu are both described as unnaturally large you know there's this kind of even just on a physical level they're not uh they're not like ordinary people um and achilles has kind of skills that seem to go beyond what any ordinary person could possess odysseus maybe is a bit different odysseus feels like a very you know more modern kind of more sort of human do you know what I mean? He's just a very yeah, smart more, guy. He, he knows yeah. how to talk himself out of a situation. He's he's kind of handy with his sword and so on. You know, he's kind of he's 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 got a his hero, but a human him. hero. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas some of these other characters, they definitely are sort of on that boundary between uh, you know humans and gods, or, or or in a sense between the kind of scientific real world as we would see it and the kind of realm more of fantasy. But of course. You know, that's from our kind of 21st century perspective where we don't believe in dragons and we don't believe in, you know, uh, capricious gods and we don't believe in in all these things. But, you know, if you're reading those stories at the time, I mean, I don't know, you know, at the time when people were uh, reading or hearing Beowulf to begin with, I don't know what their, you know, views would have been on, you, you know, some of those things would have felt more real. The idea of a dragon would have felt very differently to them than it does to us um and and grendel which you mentioned you know grendel and his mother who beowulf has to kill both of them i mean i think they are very interesting kind of monsters because you can't read beowulf as a sort of 21st century reader and not think what chakotay says in that voyager episode which is this 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 represents something and it's it's maybe not you know i was sort of trying to puzzle out what what exactly does this monster represent but it's it feels so loaded with meaning in that story that you kind of feel this is it's 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 more than just a story about a monster it's more than just some random monster there is something kind of going on there whether consciously or not on the part of the person who wrote that poem but you, you know um what do these things mean, not just literally, but I suppose that's the thing is that they mean things literally that are different to what they mean to us because they're 
literal understanding of the world at those times might be different. But there is also that level of kind of symbolism and and deeper meaning and kind of allegorical meaning and and uh, metaphorical meaning, and that must be there to some extent. It's it's not like that's just a later invention. It it doesn't have any role to play in the original. Yeah, I wondered if perhaps maybe um, I know what you mean about Beowulf and Grendel. I couldn't really put my finger on it I'm sure there's lots of expertise that's been written about it but I wondered a little bit if there wasn't some sort of connection between the two of them you know like if the hero is kind of almost like killing a savage part of himself or yeah. or you know if he's if if the, if the the monsters themselves are somehow supposed to represent a part of the hero you know a part of the hero that they um that is supposed to be ex- extinguished you know, or, or a deep flaw in the hero. I, it just feels like Grendel and Beowulf are kind of weirdly, it's like they're, supposed, they're sort of fated to have this conflict with each other. Yeah. You know I mean, it wouldn't it have worked with some way, other monster. Of... Like, I don't think it would have worked with some sort of mythic beast that didn't have uh, like a complex personality. And it carries a lot more weight somehow that i mean you know in the story of beowulf he kills three monsters but that's the one that everyone remembers that's the one that makes it into the voyager story that's the one that's kind of you know it's it's seen as sort of key to that story somehow i yeah i agree with you i mean it's interesting and i think from a modern perspective it's people can't resist the temptation to kind of make sense of it so if you look at the um the film that was made of beowulf a few years ago um in that it's very much I mean, first of all, it seems to be as this sort of vague sense that the monster is that the king Hrothgar has kind of brought this on his people somehow, and that somehow he's he's responsible for it. In the end, it turns out he's very literally responsible for it because in that version of the story, it turns out that uh, Grendel is the king's sort of bastard son, and that he's had him with with Grendel's mother, and so that's the whole sort of. Uh, and then it goes into this whole thing where Beowulf ends up doing something similar and creating, you know, a new monster, and so it's this kind of. But I suppose that, in a sense, is sort of literalizing something that can exist on a more metaphorical level. That it, it is, I suppose it's you know Freud talks about the return of the repressed. There's some there's something about there's there is something about that monster that seems to be because it comes in the middle of the night because it's so brutal and savage and cruel, but at the same time, it's not entirely unhuman. Do you know what I mean? It's not entirely alien. It's not some weird light force. It's not a dragon. It's it is recognizably a sort of monstrous version of a human being somehow um that it 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 certainly feels like it's very laden with meaning um in that poem and i think that's one of the things as you pointed out that is lacking in the voyager episode in heroes and demons is that uh it, you know because of this desire to marry these two stories the stories about the story about the photonic beings and so on you know the kind of real world story with the with the holodeck story in a sense it loses one of the most interesting elements of the Beowulf story is what is this very vivid, very interesting monster. I wonder a little bit if perhaps maybe, um, like you were saying, it's a very, Grendel's kind of a very human monster. I wonder if a little bit that wouldn't work so well in Star Trek because I feel very much in Star Trek, it's a, the franchise is a very human franchise. So obviously there are aliens in Star Trek, but it's very much a human story like i feel like the 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 the, the series explore what it means to be human the, the pursuit of trying to mm. be human you know like a data trying to be human um i know spock's trying to hide his humanity but he's trying to a- achieve equilibrium with it as well um 
so often you're right that the threats aren't very they aren't very human they aren't they aren't they aren't like the sort of ugly sides i mean of uh, of humanity i suppose in some cases like in some episodes like turn about i think it's turnabout intruder maybe where uh is it turnabout intruder where or maybe it's not one of one of the episodes where kirk gets sort of split by the transporter oh the enemy, enemy within. within that's it turnabout intruder he ends up being possessed by a woman right like a venge- vengeful woman um every man's worst worst nightmare um <laughs> but like um yeah it's it's um you know in that case you know he's kind of like his own worst enemy but um in most cases the villains of of the series are aliens um or 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 the threats are some scientific sort of esoteric threat like you know crystalline crystalline entity or something um in a way i think a little bit that's where star trek falls down a bit i guess there's parts of, of starfleet that are slightly corrupt you know um aspects of that like section 31 there's some dodgy dealings going on there but in most cases we're on the side of the humans um mm. and in epic heroes with epic heroes and, and epic mythology and epic poems i'm not sure we are always on the side of of um of the epic heroes there's more maybe more moral ambiguity there i don't know or but like like you said we're looking all of this through a modern context and i think in a way that's where um the starfleet the, sorry, the star trek writers um fall down a bit because i think they're using these epic stories to imbue the the, the series with this i don't know what you would say a sort of classic sort of uh intellectual art art aspect to it if you see what i'm saying and i feel and it's partly i I think it's also it's partly kind of i mean you know maybe one of the problems with heroes and demons was the 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 guy who wrote it said he was surprised when he went in to pitch that episode although apparently he originally just wanted to do an episode about vikings it was only later on he realized that he he might as well do uh beowulf but he was surprised that no one else in the room had read beowulf because he he sort of thought you know oh everyone's read beowulf from you, you know, I don't know. He obviously read it at school or university or whatever. But I mean, I think there's, you know, maybe there's an element of, therefore, does does the level of obscurity of something like Gilgamesh? It's very different from you know Picard performing, uh, or Data rather performing Henry V, you know, with Picard in in that scene in the Defector, uh, when Henry V was playing in cinemas at the time with Kenneth Branagh and was kind of about as mainstream as a Shakespeare play, you know, can get at the time. Is quite different from Picard bringing up this, you know, epic poem that, you know, most viewers would be lucky to have heard of, let alone read. Uh, but obviously, you know, he's this kind of enlightened uh, man of books and so on. And, and, you know, is very well read and very well informed and so on. Um, and it, it, is there a danger of, I suppose the question is, you know, Trek kind of uh, veers between I mean, the next gen is probably the most highbrow of the series. And then by the time you get to Voyager, it's all about kind of B-movies and and kind of you, you sort of schlock entertainment, in a sense, is the kind of cultural touchstone a lot of the time, in later Voyager anyway. And in Enterprise, again, it's all about these kind of slightly ropey uh, horror movies and things it seem to be what they watch on their movie night. So there's definitely a sense that at some point that kind of highbrow uh, peak of next gen... Um, starts to slide a bit culturally do you know what i mean and star trek's kind of cultural reference points get less and less highbrow and i wonder whether heroes and demons and the fact that there was this kind of issue for the writer over 
he thought he was writing about something that was a kind of cultural touchstone in the way that Shakespeare or Sherlock Holmes or whatever is and actually turned out to be much more obscure than he thought. Um, it, you know, kind of plays into that somehow, into that kind of where does Star Trek sort of pitch its cultural moorings uh, from our, our own real world culture? Well, you know, what's going to be useful and what isn't on the other hand it just occurred to me you know Janeway is constantly reading Dante um so (laughs) slightly undermines what I've been saying but at the same time she can do that because she's the captain uh anyone else is down on the holodeck kind of mucking around in you know maybe she's the intellectual captain leading like a ship full of like like she's the intellectual snobby captain leading a ship a ship full of people who have like no interest in any intellectual literature or yeah, the, you yeah. know. Although in a way, that's that's Captain Picard and Riker as well, isn't it? Because you know you have that scene in First Contact where Riker, and you quite often have Riker sort of walking in on Captain Picard and trying to get involved in his, you know, oh, what are you reading? What are you listening to? And you can see he's just like, yeah, this means nothing yeah, to like, me. Oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> anyway, onto the business <laughs> of the ships. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think um, it's interesting what you say because I think that there's a very little. Uh, there's very little uh, sort of examples of how people so far in the future would view the literature of like the very far back, very, 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 Mm. very, very far past. So for instance, Henry, Henry V is closer to us uh, in history than Gilgamesh is, right? It's interesting you should say Gilgamesh is so weird, right? Um, And part of it, I think, is because it is kind of weird, but also part of it is because we're reading it, you know, in 2017. I wonder, I just wonder what somebody in, you know, 2517 is going to think of it. And there's no, there's no indication that Picard reading, you know, I don't know, the Odyssey or something is finding it difficult because he's in a completely different social, cultural situation. I mean, it's quite possible that Janeway reading a book that was published today, you know, I mean, or, or then watching mm. a James Bond film or something, they might be like, what is this? Because it wouldn't fit in with the cultural cultural um, influence of Starfleet or the different sort of mor- moralities of the Federation. I'm just thinking an example of something that might be strange would be uh, watching a movie like The Wolf of Wall Street, you know, where they have they have don't have a real sense of money in the, in, in the Federation or in the future. I mean, I know there's a Ferengi and everything, but like, because the, the replicators have pretty much killed a competitive economy because you can replicate whatever you want. So capitalism is either dead or not kind of sm- existing in very small little pockets throughout the universe. So um, they watch the Wolf of Wall Street and be like, what is this? You know, who are these people and yeah. why are they doing all of this? I wonder a little bit if <laughs> they wouldn't have the same sort of feeling when reading an epic poem. I mean, we can read the Iliad of the Odyssey now and be like, what you know because it's so far removed from our culture and i wonder if it's going to be even far further well i say it's going to be like like picard's going to be a real person who's going to be born in the future you know like (laughs) obviously this is all (laughs) a fictional universe but if there was something like that you know i mean why wouldn't janeway be confused by dante's inferno yeah yeah, well, they've obviously, we assume, I mean, we know they learn Latin at Starfleet Academy, so maybe they, they you know, do some intensive kind of literature courses as well. But, I mean, it's interesting when you're thinking of Darmok, obviously, Picard doesn't pull out any of the weird stuff in Gilgamesh. He pulls out the kind of 
the element that is totally uh, relatable and that anyone can connect to. Do you know what I mean? These two guys, they they start as enemies, they become friends, they work together. One of them dies, the other one's heartbroken. I mean, all he he pulls out the most kind of universal elements of that story. Uh, it's kind of picking and choosing, and, and doesn't mention any of the really weird stuff that goes on around that. Um, and I think one of the things that we see in Star Trek is that when they engage with these kind of cultural forms, if you think about like Tom Paris and Captain Proton or, or you know, any of the kind of hollow novels that they play, there's always this kind of uh, gap between the, the one who's passionate about the history. So say Paris is passionate about 20th century Earth history and can kind of basically take it on its own terms and and view that or read that or experience that notionally as the person would have done originally. And they kind of talk about this. I mean, in that episode where he he makes a in the holodeck a um an, an old 3D, you know, black and white 3D horror movie. And they're they're kind of joking about the fact that, you know, this is a three-dimensional uh recreation of a movie theater which is going to screen a two-dimensional image uh, that's meant to represent three dimensions through these these special lenses and so on. You know, there's this kind of element of like is it possible to take this on its own terms as an experience or as a piece of culture or as a piece of literature or whatever it is? Or is it necessarily filtered through that kind of all the disjuncts and all the kind of, um, like I said before, the kind of gnarly, sticky points, all the things that jump out at you and you think, wow, that's really weird. You know, do they really think that? Um, And it's kind of the impression that we're given is that if the people are passionate enough about something, whether that's Paris with his, uh, you know, Captain Proton stuff or Janeway with her Dante or whatever, they can kind of totally meet it on its own terms. And there's none of that kind of, there are none of those barriers to understanding. There are none of those kind of problems. And, and it does sometimes seem a bit strange. And I think sometimes you do sort of question why, why are they playing out these stories? I mean, why, oh, you can just about understand Harry Kim wants to be Beowulf because he'd like to think of himself as this kind of tough guy hero, which he which he clearly isn't. Why Captain Janeway wants to play a governess in this sort of Jane Eyre fantasy I is utterly bewildering to me. I've never understood that one. I, <laughs> I, I feel like that was <laughs> such a bizarre piece of characterization. But but I suppose, I suppose what we're talking about is really, you know, the fantasy lives of these characters and how they relate to this kind of literature of the past, you know, and, and Captain Picard we have with this kind of pulpy, you know, Dixon Hill novels, which again is sort of incongruous, but you can kind of, I feel like you can buy that somehow in the same way as, you know, you can buy that someone who's quite intellectual and sophisticated might also have a guilty pleasure. And it kind of, at least you can see the appeal of that. You can see the appeal of that pleasure as kind of trash, that it's kind of fun and it's a, a release for him. But um, I don't know, I guess I think it's, it's some examples Star Trek matches these things up uh, better than others but you know if we didn't have Picard as this kind of intellectual captain this this well-read captain we wouldn't get uh, you know the introduction of something like Gilgamesh we wouldn't have have got perhaps as much Shakespeare as we did in Next Generation Um, and you know maybe we maybe then we wouldn't have had Janeway reading Dante you know we wouldn't have I feel like Picard is the captain that kind of opened the the floodgates in a way to a lot of that. I mean, Tony and I have talked before about the wrath of Khan and the use of literature in that. But I mean, aside from that being a, a key kind of moment uh, for Star Trek, I think really in terms of characterization, it's Picard who kind of allows them to bring in that whole kind of human culture because he's, you know, he he's not like a lot of, you know, Riker or Georgie or someone else on his crew who's kind of baffled by 
their history. He's, you know, he's someone who knows his history, he knows his literature. He's kind of, he's, he's well read in these things. And there's something great about that though, as well, because he's an example of someone who's um, always wanting to learn um, and, and always wanting to um, read more and think more about like what he's reading and what he's exploring. And I think that's a good message, especially for younger viewers who are watching Star Trek for the first time, you know, like it's, in, in an age where a lot of entertainment and science fiction is people running around um, beating people up or having battles here is uh, a hero, the ma- one of the main heroes of a sci-fi series um, and he listens and he talks and he discusses um, ideas with people and he's, and he's curious and he's, he's also introspective as well so reading like epic poetry or um, or, or, or even his, you know, his music that he plays and all that sort of stuff. It's actually quite an uh, individual, solitary type thing to do. It's not something that's communal. So it's also an example of um, enjoying your own company and and pursuing your own mm. um, intellectual interests, which I think is good. Yeah, it valid. It definitely validates. It. I mean, he's the sort of heroic. He's the kind of heroic scholar, I suppose, isn't he? Um, you know, compared maybe to the other captains, he he spends, like you say, a lot of time on his own, kind of. Um, exploring the past exploring these texts i mean you know at the end of next gen q says this thing to him about you know the exploration doesn't have to be all about going outside um you know going outside and exploring the galaxy it can be exploring yourself exploring the human condition and and certainly that's what picard is doing i suppose when he opens up his his volume of shakespeare and and you know he 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 talks about you know the importance of reading literature the importance of studying history of you know learning i suppose where where you come from and and recognizing these kind of cultural touchstones. So so definitely he's a character who although he's living, you know, very much in the future, he's he's very closely connected to the past. So out of curiosity, I think we kind of established that the characters in Star Trek, the cap the captains at least, although they that we've made lots of connections and there's lots of parallels between epic heroes and epic myth and epic poetry with Star Trek. I think we kind of established that they, they aren't epic heroes in the sense of like Gilgamesh or Achilles or Beowulf. So what would be the example of like, what would be the ideal hero in Star Trek? Is it, it what's like the, the, the characteristics of a modern hero? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? That's the kind of who's your captain question, I suppose, which people have been arguing about, well, ever since Next Gen debuted, haven't they? And, you know, is your, is your ideal because I think it kind of amounts to the same thing in the sense, you know, whose who's ship do you want to be on? Who do you, who's your, who's your ideal captain? Is it, it, it traditionally, is it Kirk or Picard? And I know some people would go for one of the others, but I mean, because I suppose those are two archetypes in a sense in that Picard is so much a kind of reaction to Kirk, Kirk being kind of impulsive and physical and kind of um, emotional and you know driven to some extent by sort of desires and 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 these kind of quite human things and Picard being very kind of sophisticated and aloof and you know older and wiser and so on um but I guess that's kind of what it comes down to what sort of what sort of modern hero do you want you know what 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 qualities do you think are most important but do they all have one mod one quality like I mean I actually do think that they all I see right one quality which I think is kind of essential in almost any hero in Star Trek, and I'm not talking about anti-heroes like um, Khan. You know, I mean, 
Khan is a very popular character or, or um, you know, Ducat is actually a fantastic character, but he's definitely a villain. And I, one of the things that for me that resonates in all heroes in Star Trek, Captain and otherwise, although we have yet to see with the new series, Discovery, what that kind of hero they'll be, but um, is that they they care about other people. They care about other people more than they care about themselves. They're willing yeah, to sacrifice. They're self-sacrificing. Yeah, they're going to sacrifice they're compassionate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Janeway is like that as well. You know, you see the number of times that Janeway says she's willing to blow up her own ship or do you know what I mean? There's a kind of, and, and, you know, it, the, the, all those scenes of people setting self-destructs and so on. There's, it's definitely, you know, it's a kind of, it's absolutely a, a core element of it. I mean, the compassion comes out in the kind of, you know, the good deeds they're doing, but also just that idea of, yeah, rec- all of them at some point or another recognize that their own life and even the lives of their crew are expendable. If there's a, if there's something bigger at stake, and you know that's that's the decision that they'll take. I think that's true, with you know, without exception. And I think in today's world, that is, I mean, in our world today, I think we we emulate lots of different. I mean, lots of different people are praised and put on pedestals. And I think we emulate a lot of people for a lot of reasons, whether or not they're wealthy, whether or not they're very attractive, whether or not they have a really successful career, whether they're brilliant sports or whatever. But the true heroes, the heroes, I think that people really do look up to. Those very important figures in history um and i mean good important figures in history i don't mean terrible figures who perpetrated some horrific war or massacre i mean like those really amazing people that you look up to the people that win like Nobel peace prizes and stuff often are people who are trying to work for the greater good and i think that's one of the things that um i would say almost any hero in star trek because there's certain things that Riker does that's heroic it doesn't have to be a captain you know, Kira's heroic at times, you know, I mean, you could almost name any of them, but it, whenever they are heroic, it, they're very often sacrificing their own sense of self. They're like putting their egos aside and they're thinking about other people. And sometimes the heroic deeds are quite small. They're not even uh, as big as blowing up your own ship or giving up something massive, giving up your life, giving up your career or whatever for something, for someone, somebody else or for other people. Sometimes they're quite small. Like when I was watching a recent episode of Deep Space Nine, uh, there's an episode where um, Kira's sort of, uh, she's friends with a much older Cardassian, you know, who plays like sort of a surrogate father. And she finds out that he was involved in a, in a, um, a tra- uh, I think I think it's a massacre or some, some or she's, he was involved in it's organizing some military operation during the war. Um, and he's dying and she doesn't want to go to him in his final, final hours because she's angry and she's upset. And in the end, she swallows her pride and she's brave and she goes there and she holds his hand as he dies like she's there with him when he dies and she wasn't brave enough to be with her own father when he died um and this is like a second chance for her and that's like a little that's like a little thing of bravery it's putting aside herself because she knows she can bring comfort to this man in his final hours um and thinking of him instead of herself and in the end obviously she benefits from it too but yeah yeah Def- definitely that idea of, of, of you know putting others before yourself and i mean in voyager we see that you know in the in the pilot episode that that's the whole premise of the show is actually it's not just that they get sent to the other side of the galaxy by this you know sort of random event it's the fact that Janeway strands them there in order to help strangers essentially and you know which is very much kind of is a very strong sort of position and you know she's absolutely throughout that series articulates that kind of 
very sort of strict adherence to that kind of Starfleet ideal. You know, we see compared with, say, Captain Ransom uh, of the Equinox, who's much more about serving his own interests and the interests of his crew. Um, and I suppose that's why, you know, by the time you get to the end of Voyager, you know, Captain Janeway is the hero. Admiral Janeway is kind of the villain of that episode, in a sense, because she, you know, even though her her motives are totally understandable, are totally sympathetic in a way you know you can kind of understand why she does that but in terms of the sort of function of the story she's not really she's not heroic in the way that captain janeway is she she's you know she's a more torture complex character she's a character in need of redemption so at the very end of that episode where she does sacrifice herself that's her kind of redemptive moment in a way but up till that point she was sort of struggling towards that somehow so a question i would have would be um is this kind of hero, this self-sacrificing hero, um, exhibited in other other types of sci-fi. Like, is this something that you would find repeatedly in sci-fi, in other shows, in other films? Um, this very is this like a very science fiction type of hero, a hero that's willing to um, put their own needs aside for the greater good or for a their community and their group. And I think you do see that in things like like TV series Firefly, and I think mm-hmm. you do see it in like. Babylon 5 for instance mm-hmm. and to a certain extent I think you see it in Star Wars yeah um, especially like in most recent one of the most recent films Rogue One yeah definitely. there's a whole bunch of people sacrificing their lives for the greater good it's maybe I mean it's interesting Rogue One has a sort of real like war film I mean I was just thinking like so the second world war I feel like we, we associate that in some ways with the second world war this idea of sort of something bigger than yourself of a kind of noble fight of something that might be worth sacrificing yourself for do you know what i mean that, that, that there's kind of if the stakes are high enough if if enough is at threat somehow but i suppose one of the things that's interesting about these star trek captains is that the, the defining those stakes can be is sort of a matter of perspective so as a viewer often it might be hard for us to engage to the same extent that they do with with how serious the stakes are for some alien culture that we've only met 10 minutes before do you know what i mean but the extent to which for example there's a voyager episode where janeway's willing to destroy voyager because of the the marquee weapon that's gonna hit a planet and kill lots of people um you, you know something like that is a very noble gesture basically saying this you know it's not even really her responsibility this thing but she's basically willing to sacrifice herself and her ship to help these people who again she doesn't you know know from adam pretty much um, and I think that certainly that is, they take it to an unusual extent, really. Um, and we see that even in the original series, in the Corbin manoeuvre, you know, that kind of compassion that Kirk shows to the enemy, which sort of surprises people even on his own ship, uh, that he's he's willing to kind of be antagonistic, uh, you know, nearly all the way through the episode and at the very end. And again, we see with the Gorn in Arena, I suppose, you know, at the very end say, look, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to... Um, behave in that way i'm going to show compassion i'm going to uh sort of turn the other cheek i'm going to you know do the right thing yeah and that's something you don't get to see you don't see in the villains and the villains are very self-absorbed the villains um they have very strong egos um and they yeah i I sort of feel that's more of an epic hero um sort of personality these strong egos these um pursuits of glory these uh, or pursuits of revenge this intense anger this uh, Mm. unwillingness to compromise that's very achilles that's very agamemnon definitely maybe not so much gilgamesh after he's you know been civilized with it by his friend but it's definitely gilgamesh in the beginning 
um, of, of the poem. So it's, it's just funny to think that these heroes that were um, so revered in the past now have more in common with what we would consider villains today. It just shows how different our societies are. Definitely. Um, and how, and how, how, how much human civilization has kind of progressed. Not that I'm trying to like badmouth ancient Greeks or <laughs> ancient Mesopotamians, but they had a different, different priorities, Definitely. a different kind of world. Definitely. And yeah. also you have to remember in the past, people had much shorter lives. It's much easier to go out and seek glory and be selfish when you're only going to live to be like 33. You know, I mean, in, uh, presumably in, 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 in Starfleet and Star Trek, or in the Federation, you're going to end up with an incredibly long lifespan. Um, so you you might as well like think about the greater good. You might as well think about the future. You might as well try and get along with everybody while you can. Um, so um, I think I think the the, the the heroes of Star Trek are definitely more communal, more modern, um, and less egotistical. Brilliant. Um- so it's been fun talking about epic heroes in Star Trek and, and some epic villains maybe as well. But Clara, why don't you let our listeners know where they can find you online if they want to continue the conversation? So you can find me on Twitter at um, Clara Jean MC. So that's at Clara Jean MC. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a really interesting conversation. Uh, it's been epic. But talking about epic heroes is not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to some of the other things you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. Is there anything else we need to add or do we think that's the... Are we going to cure Riker or... <laughs> oh, shoot. I forgot about Riker. Yeah, sure. Fine. We'll keep him around. Yeah, we've cured Riker. And then uh, for, for me, this would, yeah, or, or not. <laughs> Meta Trex. Troy's quarters. Data's quarters. They're very Spartan. They're very Spartan. In fact, Data's girlfriend even says they're Spartan. Right? Yes, yes. And so what does she do? She brings him stuff. A trinket to fill it up. <laughs> to fill it up. <laughs> Warp 5. And this reminds me so much of the cage. So much of the cage. See, I think of, uh, yeah, you think of the cage too, but I also think of, uh, of uh, what's his name? B- Baylock in the Corbomite maneuver, Yes, right? yes. Offering him the drink. Tranya. <laughs> the Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. For an opening episode to get that relationship, like you could see that that crew really had been working together for seven years, which is so wow. not normal for a launch for a first episode, right? Because you, yeah. you've got the odds, but they seemed to be have working forever together. The camaraderie that they had, the trust that they have with each other. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. 
visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the large conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended already.